0: Welcome to the Digital Responsibility Podcast. There is a vibrant community around the world exploring how we drive forward digital innovation, products and services, and generally exploit technology progression for the sustained benefit of society and the planet. On this podcast, you will hear from me, Christopher Joinson, and Rob Price, two of the original founders of Corporate Digital Responsibility. As we speak to our guests, to hear their stories and piece together what it means to be responsible in the digital age. If you'd like to learn more, take a look at the website, corporatedigitalresponsibility.net. Excellent. So I'm really excited tonight. It's the last episode of season four of the Digital Responsibility podcast. Um, and it, 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 we have to go with the topical kind of conversation around generative AI, large language models, um, and and some of the amazing things that can be done, as I'm sure lots of us that are listening will have played with uh, ChatGPT and others and seen the things that can be done, but also some of the concerning sides of how do we ensure that there's a an ethical guidance in in understanding what 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 we need to consider on that journey. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by two guests, um, uh, Chris and Sean. I did set off by thinking what would be the best introduction, and and went into ChatGPT. And, and try to get a variety of styles of introduction to kind of kick things off from Tolkien to Beatrix Potter. Uh, but but I decided we'd just go with the straightforward. Uh, well, Sean, tell us a bit about you. Um, perhaps we should define what a large language model is and then why it's important to your business. And then Chris, we'll come to you next.
1: Sure yeah look thanks for that uh, Rob so my name's Sean Williams I'm the chief executive at Autogen AI we are using large language models and other technology uh, to help organizations with their corporate pros. so specifically to write bids tenders proposals uh, and other marketing copy uh, so that's that's me
0: and, and and so just just recognizing that not everyone will kind of be necessarily familiar with Things like ChatGPT or large language models, or generally, what, what does it what does it mean to you? Just as a kind of very much a starter for ten.
1: Yeah, so we are very used to computers being able to add up faster than us, and and actually, as human beings, we've got used to that. They can add up faster than us. They can multiply faster than us. Um, but I spent you know kind of the best part of two decades as a writer, uh, and I spent my undergraduate days, and then those decades I spent as a writer telling anyone who would listen that computers would never be able to conquer human language because human language was uniquely part of our makeup. Uh, and then 18 months ago, uh, a friend of mine, Andy, who works for DeepMind, uh, told me that I was completely wrong and they'd built something that was able to write language. And I told him not to be silly. Of course they hadn't. Um, and then I looked uh, and large language models, which were essentially a big neural networks so I I think of them as kind of artificial brains Um, so uh, three things changed with why computers couldn't do language and now they can Um, one is the brains got bigger so just Moore's law type they got more powerful two is they read more so they've got this training data modern large language models these big neural network brains Uh, they, they pretty much read everything that's ever been written and certainly everything that's ever been digitized uh, and the third thing was the way those brains were constructed. So the underlying architecture. Um, in 2017, a paper came out called "All You Need Is Attention" by a, primarily a group of Google engineers, uh, and that changed the architecture of those neural nets. So size, training data, and this change in the way that the uh, architecture was constructed—that suddenly created this emergent property of being able to write sentences and paragraphs. And it is, you know, it is it is truly remarkable. So that's. That's what a large language is, and what a large language engine does. So computers can't just add up faster than us. Now, now they write faster than us as well.
0: And and the thing, I mean, to that point earlier of uh, asking you to it in different styles or tones. I mean, it's not just writing language. It's writing language as others have done before. I mean, at the weekend I was sat with my mum looking out over a snowy garden full of pigeons, um, and I said. Are you you familiar, as you do with your eighty kind of plus year old parents? Are you familiar with large language models? Uh, No, no, she said, and and we got it to quickly write a poem about the pigeons in the garden, uh, which kind of gave us a number of immense giggles. That's harmless fun, of course. So, Chris, over to you. Bit of background about yourself, and and I guess you're the other side of yeah. I mean, kind of still kind of recognise the value of what can be done, but making sure that it's not migrating into the the harms and the negative side of things. Sure, thank,
2: thank, thank you for having me, Rob, and um, great to be here, um, having this conversation with yourself and Sean. So, just a bit about my background to set the perspective in, in you know, what, why I think and my perspective, you know, of, of this subject. So, I've got about three decades of, of experience across financial services, software, data, consulting, and GRC. And and of those, of that time, about two decades in GRC. So and most of my career is in the intersection of technology and business. You know, I'm a technologist at heart, but obviously, you know, extracting value from technology. So, um, and both sides, client and vendor. So, and also my experiences in large, complex global organizations, mostly financial services, have given me an understanding and appreciation of the intricacies, interconnectivity of business functions, as well as the dynamics and cultures within these global organizations that support or hinder performance, change, transformation, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I look at my lived experiences. Um, and I use the analogy of, you know, I went for an eye test last weekend and you know how when you go for the eye test, they put the lenses on. So, so when you, when you sort of take each lens and then you sort of, I've got a, a technology lens, you know, business transformation lens and then the GRC lens. So when you put all of that together, I see the world through those lenses and I see because of the GRC aspect, I see, um, the risk. Right from using emerging technologies that I think most people don't see because they they just purely using them to, to 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 solve problems right. Whereas I I've got that different perspective, so and 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 um, because of that right I I you know and I write the articles that I write I give that perspective, and also the other hat I wear is I'm I'm also part of For Humanity, um, which is a, a non-profit uh, charity uh, and it, it's it's basically crowdsourced. It's uh, you know the 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 uh, I'm a Fellow, there I'm a certified auditor and also on the ethics committee. We can talk about for humanity later in much uh, you know greater detail. So, so going back to you know to, to your question, the flip side of uh, innovation, um, you know, is really to to bring in risk management, bringing governance because a lot of these technologies I call them non-deterministic. So in the olden days, you know, when we we're much younger and uh, when I was cutting code, we're dealing with deterministic technology. So when you program something right in a particular way you put in the logic you know it's going to come out these technologies that we're dealing with are non yeah because they're probabilistic um you know you cannot guarantee you're going to get the same results every single time and and because of that nature it's loaded with risk right and and so if developers don't you know don't see that the downsides of uh, of those potential outcomes is going to put the you know, the consumers of the out, uh, outputs you know potentially in, in, in you know uh, w- within the side of harm and so when I when I talk about responsible innovation I, I you know I talk about governance I talk about risk management I talk about you know the whole um you know re- relevant legal frameworks so you know if you're if you're in a particular jurisdiction and you're bounded by those regulations and laws you need to think about those things as well so and when you put all of that together, Really, the context in which I look at the world is really uh, focusing on soci- what I call socio-technical systems, right? The, the, the application of these technologies on people directly. So where where these systems embody personal data, they embody humans within them. Uh, and so I'm not, you know, obviously a lot of corporates use these technologies um, to to help them make decisions. So so when when you know they are experts in in the field. The technologies um, help them in the decision making. Instead of more decision support, you know, use cases of technologies. For me, they're managing the risk. They bear the risk. The organization bears the risk. But when they start deploying these technologies through socio-technical systems, and these things work autonomously, right, uh, making automated decisions and profiling, and and hence, you know, when they uh, have these risks embedded and not managed, you get all sorts of problems, like we've seen with you know, being in check GPT, et cetera, et cetera,
0: et cetera. So, so I guess the key thing for me is, and, and I've talked about it many times, if we look at that from a regulation point of view and the complexity of any organisation understanding what all the regulations are in all the geographies in which they operate, plus, of course, regulation takes time Regulation needs to change. I mean, kind of, if we look at the EU AI regs, for example, and the evolution and what counts as high risk, etc. Can we simplify that enough to to enable organisations to, to to know what to do? To kind of, do they need to go to a for humanity or or otherwise set of auditors or a digital ethics advisory board? There are great things it can do. We'll come to those in a minute, Sean. So, kind of, get ready for that one. But but how, Chris? How how do we enable organisations to know where that line is? Yeah, so so very good question.
2: Uh, if you look at a lot of these regulations, right? So so the the way they're interpreted, um, uh, well, the way they're applied within organizations or, or they're consumed, it's through legal and compliance, right? So, so and then and then it's basically black and white tick the box exercises, and that that's how they've always been adhered to in the past, right? But when 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 we're dealing with socio technical systems we're looking at multidisciplinary aspects, right? You're talking about the, the social aspects and there's people aspects in it, there's personal data, That's you know, so, so therefore you need to look beyond just from a legal and compliance perspective. You need to, you know, and and I know that if if you look at a typical, um, you know, technology uh, function within a, a large bank, for example, or a technology company, um, I think let, let's look at a, a bank, for example, right? The technology function would solve problems, okay? They, they will solve problems very efficiently because they understand the technology. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll use technology, but they're not necessarily thinking about the implications of regulations and how they, you know, they should be, or the solution should embody, um, you know, adherence to regulations. And when you start adding ethics into the equation, which they need to, because of these sociotechnical aspects of it, right? Um, they, They're not doing that because that's, that's not how they trained. It's not, that's not their perspectives of the world right uh, because these are interdisciplinary um it requires um you know w- what what we call it for humanity
0: diverse inputs and multi-stakeholder feedback so you need to get but they don't basically... get but but most businesses don't get that at the moment do they i mean it, it that's the challenge exactly that's why we're trying to educate them right, right. and that's what that's why when we um
2: when we're working up with regulators to, to basically um you know um try and uh, you know, align on our audit criteria. When we talk about diverse inputs and multi stakeholder, they don't understand that, right? Because that's that's like you said, it's a it's a new nomenclature, it's a new new kind of thinking paradigm. Um, b- but we we because we we try and embody, you know, the, the, those attributes into this, you know, what we call DINMSF, DI You know, you need to think about somehow getting diversity of thought, diversity of lived experiences through, you know, a representation of the of the stakeholders for that, you know, within the value chain that's going to be impacted by that socio-technical system into the equation, right? So it's so into the environment where these things are being developed through its life cycle. Now, it's not going to come from one function. It's going to require a, a cross-function sort of, you know, multidisciplinary, um, uh, you know, team, I would say, right, or or, or, or uh, collaboration. Uh, and that's, you know, you need to then look at internal stakeholders, external stakeholders. Basically, if we chart out the entire, you know, uh, st- all the list of stakeholders in the value chain, this is what people need to think about. Right? You need to think through it, right? Uh,
0: and it's complex and it's not simple. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 probably kind of it's too complex. Which will, uh, so let's flip it round and let, and let's comment it from a different angle. So I saw a tweet the other day by uh, Dean Hinchcliffe. So so a key Twitter influencer, I'm sure a number of us follow him, uh, and he was getting quite excited about does this act as a potential solution for the perennial problem for every business, which is internal knowledge management. It never knows what it's got within the business. Now, Sean, when 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 we had a demo of kind of your your solution. That was the bit that shone through for me. I suddenly kind of thought, "Hey, kind of does this give me the ability to solve one of the biggest problems that I've got, which is to efficiently and effectively play my best corporate kind of card in winning this bid?" That's that's what your, I mean, that's your use case, isn't it? Effectively.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's all sorts of things that you can do with large language models. So a lot of people are focusing on the generative power of them. Um, But the other really interesting part about large language models is their semantic power. So at the moment, if you wanted to look through a corpus of text or knowledge in a business, you might do it on a keyword search. Uh, And indeed, most even kind of very sophisticated search organisations like Google were essentially using keyword search. What large language models enable us to do is encode semantic meaning into very big mathematical matrices so you can look at the the meaning of a sentence uh, and then search for that meaning elsewhere it might occur in the organization so um you know if, if we're helping an organization a charity that helps um ex-offenders find jobs and, and and works in prisons um you know the language in some of their papers might be around reducing recidivism but the word recidivism isn't used kind of much at all in kind of um, sort of modern uh, helping offenders. We talk about reducing offending. But if you type reducing offending into a uh, a large language model, it will be able to semantically find then documents with recidivism because it, it knows the meaning of what you're asking for. So that, that that's a really, really simple example. But where you say, I want a case study from Australia of where our organisation has done X in a way that that was incredibly hard to then go and find that model. Indeed, you had people, I mean, I was talking to the corporate development director of a major international technology company. You know, she's on a big six-figure salary and she spent two weeks trying to find a particular certification that their business had got. Um, now, a large language model with a with a library can do that for you in in seconds. Um, so, so, so absolutely, as you say, Rob, what we're doing with our technology is twofold. One is using this um, enormous power of semantic search to do knowledge management in a transformatively different way to what could be done 18 months ago before um, the, the tech really got these emergent powers. Um, but two, then, when you found that information that you wouldn't have been able to find before, it taken you a long time, you can now do it in seconds, you can then repurpose that information using the generative power of large language models. So I found that case study from Australia, but it was talking about helping a private sector customer. I now want to talk about how we do that in the public sector. The large language model can just rewrite that for you and, and put that into an email, put that into a proposal, or put that into a LinkedIn post. Uh, and, and really that that power, that technology, that speed improvement is, uh, is remarkable. And we talk about... We talk a lot about innovation being about speed improvement. So, you know, the abacus allowed people to add up and multiply faster, but that enabled more complex trade. The printing press enabled people to share ideas faster, but that enabled the Renaissance, the Reformation and and 99% literacy rates, uh, you know, and, and all of those other kind of profound, profound changes that come from speeding up.
0: And, and I think if I kind of look at it through the lens of of, of a CXO or a, or a partner in a consortium business, then that story of enabling my team to be more effective, I mean, I still remember when when we did the demo, I mean, kind of the colleague, uh, Ollie, kind of said, I could probably do my job in an eighth of the time. I mean, he, that was quite exciting from his point of view. And especially at a time post-pandemic, um, struggling to get... Uh, people uh, burnt out in terms of kind of people are running kind of flat out etc that that thing about doing things faster accelerating that's an attractive sell now at the same time i know from experience of playing around with not not um autogenera but in terms of chat gpt is it has it has this wonderful hallucinatory kind of ability to make things up um, so I guess kind of I'm then thinking right I'm doing I'm doing a bid into government for example and I- and I've got I've got this kind of text generated how do how do I know it's right because I know some of the and as I say it's not a comment on you on your show and it's just kind of what I've seen in terms of um, ChatGPT is it's not yet right
1: yeah I think it's it's really interesting and it plays actually into I, w- I want to kind of refer back to some of what Chris has said because I I think he's absolutely spot on. So let me start from one of the generative power of large language models is remarkable because it's generative. It makes stuff up. Making stuff up is a feature, not a bug, right, of generative large language models. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make stuff up. If I want to go and find facts, I'll do a search. I'll do a a Google search, I'll go to Wikipedia and I'll be very careful about where my, my sources are. So so one is I would start from, you just need to be very honest and use the right tool for the job. So if you want to write a poem about pigeons, if you want to take some facts and turn them into a LinkedIn post, then you can use generative AI from the facts or generative AI from the, the pigeons. So one is, uh, so we call that the discovery route. You take some facts and you use a large language model to take those facts and repurpose them. That way you don't get hallucinatory type. Um, problems. The second way that we do it is you take, uh, you allow the large language model to make something up and it will then make up a case study or will then make up a statistic. Now you use the semantic search powers of large language models to look up that made up statistic or look up that made up case study in an organization's body of actual case studies and actual statistics and you return the closest semantic actual fact to the one that has uh, made forward. So, so so let me just round that off by saying, um, one is um, that's how responsible software uses humans and large language models and search in order to make sure that things aren't hallucinatory. Two is, um, is there then a problem if you weren't doing that responsibly and you just hooked up a large language model to automatically respond to Facebook posts, automatically respond to Twitter, or I have to say, probably the stupidest application of a large language model I ever saw, getting it to write scientific papers when Facebook decided to get Galactica to do that. Uh, I mean, that, that, that to me is, is is completely irresponsible and 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 takes away from the fundamental piece around generative AI when large language models are used to do generative AI, is the point is it makes stuff up. So you have to, as a human, have human checks on that then generated text and, and factual checks because that it is a feature not a bug it makes stuff up but if you then let it write scientific papers it will be nonsense. there will be no empirical basis for that. It's just randomly picking words based on previous words That's how large language models work. They're not searching facts. If you want to search facts use use Google Google's really good for that. It's a a brilliant point because, of course,
0: um, when ChatDPT was launched, there was all that, ah, well, it's the Google killer. But as you say, they do different things.
1: So, Chris. I can't believe people think of it. Sorry, sorry, but I can't believe people are using large language models for search. I just think it's it's an incredibly silly use case. It's only because it's so big, right, and people make so much money from it. But it's uh, large language, like generative the generative use of large language models is not a use case for finding facts we've already got a very good way of finding facts it's a very good way of generating interesting content and ideas I'm sorry I've said too much one
0: <laughs> no no no, no. So that, that was brilliant so so Chris I wanted to kind of look at another use case so you mentioned kind of financial services as a background um, in terms of your career and, and it's an interesting one for me because I've done some primary research in in terms of that area around use of AI and how people are concerned or not about the ethics of AI. Um, I was chatting with somebody the other night, and they were looking at using um, uh, large language models uh, to to power chatbots in financial services organisations and and were gushing about how, how effective and realistic it was in terms of that conversation. Now, again, I appreciate that as a use case. But equally, I'm also slightly scared about that in the sense of letting it let, letting it loose on end consumer and and how that operates. So, so talk to me a bit about financial services. I mean, I've even seen uh, some some organisations just ban them at the moment, haven't I? In terms of, uh, well, we're not using that because it's just too much of a risk. Uh,
2: absolutely, and and there was a. Press release. I think Brett report that JP Morgan's banned it, right? So I'm not, not sure. And then other banks have followed suit. But um, yeah, go, going back to the chatbots, and I'll, I'll talk about um, financial services in a different light for a sec. But I just want to go back to your chatbot thing. I, I remember, um, you know, I mean, we all have used chatbots on on any of these sites, right? Websites where where it's all self service because that was a you know a cost saving initiative. And they put a chatbot in there instead of a human, and and you know, and we get frustrated because when you have a real problem, <laughs> you, you you raise it with the chatbot. It doesn't understand what you you know what on earth you're talking about, and it goes into a loop. Right? It went from a very very dumb chatbot to then this. If they start plugging in, you know, the the chat GPTs and, and and variants, um, and it depends on where they source the information from. Right? I mean, going back to Sean's point, if if you have a closed loop and you control the information, right? then you can p- potentially control the quality provided that you don't let anything else in. But if, if the, you know, if the universe of, of knowledge is the internet, <laughs> right, can you imagine um, the behaviors that, you know, uh, it will get up to, and, and then, and, and then the consumer will, will, will you know, will experience very, very similar experiences as they do now with Bing and, and, and chat GPT, right? So, so who knows which way they're going to go, but going back to financial services, um, it, my, my, um, understanding just talking to to many people within uh within those banks is, is that when they use um non-deterministic algorithmic technologies i like to, i don't like to use the word ai because i don't think they're intelligent at all <laughs> they're basically machine learning right so so um and and they they where they're used they they, they use for very specific use cases and they they usually uh, well not usually they probably have model risk management uh, uh uh you know um teams that that manage the model risk okay so so they they because banks are highly regulated right so so they they would want to ensure that you know they they the, the risk within those models don't get out of hand so so they they, they invest in resources around it but where i see the the biggest exposure in any organization including the banks today are the where 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 these technologies are embedded in third-party applications. HR, you know, your, your workplace management, all or your, or your CRMs, ERPs, where they have these things and the vendors haven't disclosed them, right? Because they've been there for you know, years and years and years, these institutions are invariably onboarding risks that could become business risks, right? Uh, because the governance functions might not know about them, right? And hence they're not actually. Um, you know, managing the risks around them and mitigating any potential you know issues uh, that that can arise. So so that's where because you talked to I've spoken to people in model, model risk management and, and they did bring up the use cases of of AI in in HR you know in HR and in recruitment and they said that's all shadow IT. Now they obviously outside of you know their remit. Um, they put it aside, but then you ask the question: Who's actually managing them? Who's governing them? I don't think there's anybody doing that. So that that's the biggest exposure I see is the use of these technologies in third-party applications, services, and platforms.
0: And it's something that we talked previously on the podcast about, even, even the last one, actually, where we were talking with um, Joe Toscano in the, in the US around tracking data through the supply chain, uh, talking about the Software uh, uh, Materials Act and talking about, uh, same for algorithms. So absolutely, how many organizations have done that today probably very few. Talk, talk to me a bit more, though, about how you see it evolving, because I'm I'm very conscious of the pace of change. And again, Sean, uh, I remember the, the slide kind of that, that uh, your colleague had on the screen that kind of just talked about the rate of change of progress in the last three years is phenomenal. So where are we going to be in the next five years in terms of what are the significant events going to be, both from a innovation and uh, at finding those kind of perfect use cases to kind of really solve some of the big problems that are out there but but chris equally to think about some of those increasing ethical challenges and how we get that right balance
1: yeah well, so um i mean i used to say something new and exciting happens in this space every two weeks but i was wrong it's about every two days uh, yeah as um you know as we've been speaking gpt4's just been released so my developers are you know, kind of getting on to, to to see how much better that is than um, DaVinci GPT-3 um, and better, how much better it is than than the chat GPT kind of models. So this really is a space where things are happening very, very fast. But again, um, and, and, I, and I just totally agree with Chris actually about how artificial intelligence is kind of a misnomer in most cases. Large language models are remarkable. They can put together sentences and paragraphs that are, Grammatical, that are compelling, that are often true, sometimes false, sometimes whimsical. Um, but they have no judgment. They simply don't know whether a sentence is true or false. It's created. They just randomly picked. I mean, you know, exactly Chris has, um, described it's a, it's a stochastic kind of non deterministic, um, process. So I think there's, I think this, the speed improvement in producing language when coupled with human judgment guidance and driving is going to be as transformative as the internet was. I, I think, you know, just that, that speeding up of, of creation of content and creation of ideas um, is, is, is going to be remarkable. But I also, I, 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 but I also feel that a lot of people have got a vested interest in either hype, over hyping for good or bad, what these models can do and what they can't do. And you know, kind of are we are we two months away from artificial general intelligence? No. And I don't think we're even close. And I don't think large language models represent a way of getting there because there's simply just stuff they can't do and have no capabilities of, of doing. And I, I simply don't believe making them bigger and more powerful will allow them to get there because I think there's something conceptually missing from what they can do, which is which is judgment. Um but what what we will see is certainly their ability to write longer form prose to you know, as I think I think uh, GPT-4 can now take 30,000 words in as input. I mean, you know, that's remarkable. The stuff you're going to be able to be able to do in summarization, the stuff you're going to be able to do in kind of contextually understanding paragraphs of, uh, sorry, understanding I use in heavy inverted commas, right? The ability to pull out information as though there was understanding, which there isn't, you <laughs> know, kind of, but, you know, to, can, can, can speeding up humans' ability to comprehend and understand. I think uh, that that's also going to be, very exciting uh, for me. Very exciting. I'm an entrepreneur. um With 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 then and, and Chris is absolutely right to say. Also, you know, something which should definitely be concerning regulators and legislators, um, and and will need appropriate checks and balances. But I'll, I'll let Chris talk to that.
0: And, and i think I mean, I'm I'm really interested in the internet point because I, I remember kind of talking about one of. The, I don't years ago we used to talk about born in the web businesses and what would the web do what was that digital mindset for a a traditional business how do you get into that space of what would the web do so I guess now we're talking about what would the large language model do comes back to that different mindset when you're setting up that disruption I guess I mean my background was payments so Brett, I, I remember reading Brett King's Bank 4.0 looking at the the challenger banks versus the traditional bank so I'm almost imagining bank 5.0 as if I was setting up a new financial institution with this at the heart rather than having to transform that legacy would it be different would it work Chris well I think you're shaking your head so so you're thinking it's too hard in a regulated environment
2: well, well, I think I mean, obviously regulations are coming, right? Um uh, I think, you know, they should come quicker, but unfortunately they'll take time. Um obviously the the you know big techs lobbying to water down a lot of these regulations as well. Um, the thing is regulations are much needed, right? Because of what we're seeing happening with Chat with GPT and then and, and how they deployed. I think, you know, let, let, let's be accurate about um you know the, the the use cases here because you know i think if you're responsible and, and if you understand the risk and you do it right or you know th- then i think the 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 outcomes you know um could be manageable right i suppose to people are just using this willy nilly and and empowering uh, bad actors to do what they want with it but but i think what's going to happen right over the coming uh, um, you know uh, short term, medium term is that regulations will come in um, and then it was going to force uh, uh you know behavioral change within uh, organizations especially regulated um I see a, a lot of these regulations are gonna call for independent audits um and, and you need you need them because obviously you know this whole you saw Gary Marcus's post out there today right about misinformation and and, and it's a big big problem it will be a big big problem right because these tools are all oh, this I, I, wrote, I wrote somewhere uh, you know uh, that the uh, these are mischievous genies that have been let loose out into the world, right? And, and they're not toys, but weapons of mass misinformation, right? And and, and so what's going to happen is society is going to start um, losing trust in a lot of these technologies and, and what potential outcomes they're going to provide, right? So, so uh, and I think, you know, the whole trust factor is going to drop, right? Uh, and people will be suspicious about you know, if somebody goes out there and say, "I've got AI right in my in my services," it's powered by this, I, mean, I think you know, going to have a, an opposite effect because I think there'll be less organizations putting you know that label AI on on beside the, the wares, and a lot of them will probably not disclose it, but they have to. Regulations will, will, will require them to disclose it, and also this being being able to disclose the limitations and risks will require them to then. Um, implement risk management governance, because otherwise you, you won't know what to disclose, right? And I think that's gonna drive behavioral change, um, but then you're always gonna have the, the tension between, and you saw this Microsoft you know, firing the, the ethical you know ethics team, right? The tension between making money and the tension, you know, uh, 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 and doing it right. But I think that, I mean, that the belief is that you can't make money if you do it right. I, I, I disagree with that. I think if you do it right, because, fast forward in a few years or maybe a few months right um i see that trust is going to be the currency for engagement right because there's so much distrust out there at the moment or there will be more and so if people don't trust your platform they will not engage with you and if you don't get engagement there's no business right so so this is more b2c rather than b2b okay so so um and and that's gonna I think that's gonna be where we're gonna head head to in terms of outcomes is that so 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 the question then becomes how should an organisation right use these technologies so that they they can be trustworthy that's a, that's a question that I believe you know if they embrace responsible innovation it kind of like get your house in order right first submit yourself to an independent scrutiny which is the audit and then you get your your know, uh, certification by somebody else and don't mark your own homework right and then you can then display that that label right they say that okay we have been independently audited um you know we're doing things right right and then you can trust us
0: because so I, it can't be like and i think the trust i mean trust um is, is so core to everything and then in a sense i guess kind of we are talking about digital responsibility so trust first principle it's 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 core to everything um and I, I i i do have a worry in terms of will organizations go through that audit process can they afford to go through that audit process whatever whoever is providing that versus is there any way to automate some of this i mean there's a couple of you i mean you said earlier chris we'd come back to for humanity so kind of let's do that before before the end of the podcast so t- tell us a bit about for humanity's approach in terms of what they're trying to do? Because I'm very conscious, as I've talked previously on the podcast, it's not as though there's a mass capability out there all ready to be deployed across all those organisations to help them prove the that they're doing things in an appropriate and ethical way. So, so why don't you share a bit about what Ryan, Carrier and the team are trying to do?
2: Sure, sure.
0: Um, So For Humanity
2: uh, as an organization um, is building an infrastructure of trust. And and what that means is that there are four um, core tenets to that. One is that um, uh, For Humanity as an organization uh, produces accessible binary uh, certification criteria. So basically, and and these are linked to the relevant uh, legal framework. So for example, we've got one for GDPR, UK and GDPR, EU. So there's a slight difference between the two. Um, we're doing, uh, we've done one for uh, EU AI Act, obviously subject to change. We, we started, we're starting one for the um, Digital Services Act, EU. Uh, we've done one for the um, uh, New York City uh, AEDT, uh, Automated Employment Decision Tools. And there's one for CCPA, which is California, right? So, so um uh, and there's there's other so we've got teams around the world. Uh, there's a team India doing you know doing one team Australia and so forth. So so we are about thirteen hundred uh, globally. So we are we are a social uh, you know I guess a, a network. Um, and and it, all it does is it produces criteria, right? So so this criteria has to be uh, maintained uh, as they change. And full humanity will do that. Okay, that's the first ten. Secondly, um, full humanity um, will format actually teaches um you know how you audit through this criteria so it's set up a, 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 a like a you know for Humanity University basically is a training program uh, and there's there's that there you could anybody can can register and and take up the training is free okay uh, so so you 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 uh, and Ryan teaches that okay and, and at the moment for the EU AI act we started up in week two now and at EU AI act there's about four uh, different people teaching in different different parts of it um, and then, obviously, that's an eight-week course. And when you finish um, uh, a course, you, you sit the exams. Now, exams, you've got to pay for it, okay? So there's a cost to the exams. And if you pass the exam, you're certified F- F- FHCA for that particular scheme, okay? Which means that, you you know, you've attained a level of competency for that. Now, behind the scenes, uh, there are a body of knowledge that we, uh, for humanity, you know, crowdsource again, and, and these are all voluntary, we, we will create, Uh, body of knowledge, so BOKs, I'm the owner for necessity assessment. And so I've got people, so I basically coordinate, you know, bring people together and we, 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 you know, we refine it, we update that and it will get published on the website. So there there are BOKs for various parts of, you know, uh, of the taxonomy that uh, people, that will help auditors get into the detail, right, in terms of how you, you know, if you if you encounter, if you go into a necessity assessment, what do you look for? Right. And what's what's a what's a um a sufficient state and what's a mature state and so forth, right? So, so there's much deeper beyond the criteria. Um and and obviously I've got to talk about FHCA. So if you you know uh, individuals that pass the exams uh will, will be certified FHCA, so that's the second tenant. Third tenant, certif- certification bodies. So uh, uh any any entity. Can license this criteria, right? Um, obviously, you know th- there's a licensing uh, commercial agreement for humanity, um, and when they license the criteria, um, they can um, they can certify the the you know the the entity. So the entities. So, so the way the way the audits work, work is that the when we do an audit, we're auditing uh, on on this thing we call target of evaluation. So basically, it's a system. Right, it's, it's a, what they call AAA system, uh, uh, algorithmic, uh, AI, AI, algorithmic, and autonomous system. Okay, so there is three things and it covers uh, basically the whole spectrum of these systems, processing personal data, right, um, and uh, and that's the target valuation. So basically, it's it's a process audit, so making sure that you know you are not auditing the algorithm, we auditing everything around. The algorithm making sure that there's governance there's oversight accountability you know there's there's processes you can actually um as part of for an organization to pass an audit they have to uh, have the capabilities that meet the audit requirements so basically they have to be able to to, to you know to, to to govern right this governance uh, structure uh, is set up they, they have to be able to make ethical decisions. Right, so so you you do ethical consideration, ethical decisions, and then obviously you know you've got processes that I guess any any uh, mature or a maturing organisation will have to set up, right, to, to make sure that they can sustain the quality of the outputs that meet these regulatory requirements. So that's and then fourthly, um, obviously, um, you know these schemes uh, need to get the I guess uh, the blessing of regulators as well. Yeah. So so. And, and so when when you have those four things together, um, you imagine that you know I mean we've got teams around the EU right and when these things, let's say the, the, the EU commission accepts it right uh, say they, they, they say we want to work with for Humanity and this will become the standard for audits, right Then you've got basically the infrastructure set up. you've got the auditors that you know, training being trained through for Humanity. they get you know the entities get certified by uh, accreditation bodies. You got the schemes which are crowdsourced. The standard schemes, so everybody will use that those schemes, and then then it can be then you know
0: delivered uh, in a consistent way. And and I'm guessing. I mean, I've always seen it as an investment for the future in terms of the putting that infrastructure in place, and and be, because I guess, Sean, my question is going to be in the conversations that you have day in day out in terms of organisations. Um, buying or, or, or buying into your solution how many of them say i'd like it but i need to kind of make sure i get audited at the same time is that is that a question do they ask the ethical question when they're buying at
1: the moment yeah i mean every customer we've spoken to has spoken about the ethical uh implications so uh, so a few things that consistently come out um, one is um, the hallucination problem. How do we make sure that what we're saying is accurate and, and consistent with the organization's um, message? Uh, two, a lot of people have read about bias uh, in AI, uh, you know, uh, sexism, racism, um, and how do you make sure that um, you, you are trying as far as possible to eliminate that from the, from the models? Um, but we we always get a few people smile and say, you know, is it is it going to take over our jobs and then take over the universe? <laughs> because obviously you can see the uh, the, uh, the the power of it. And um, so 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 I think people really are. Um, I, I think people absolutely are concerned by the potential uh, ethical implications. And I think that there's people, and then there's systems, and then there's incentives, right? And um, I think. The the key thing for businesses, individuals working within businesses, then individuals, the processes and systems within businesses to do, is I completely agree with Chris, is to make sure you've got those safeguards in place uh, and to make sure that those safeguards are independently verified and audited. It's a really... um, I tried to do a bit of work. I, I couldn't find a book on it. Maybe someone can point me in the direction of it. But I was really interested in the history of regulation in response to new technologies. So you know, how how quickly did regulation catch up with, uh, you know, kind of the um, steam engine? How quickly did regulation catch up with electricity? How quickly did uh, regulation catch up with radioactivity? How quickly did regulation catch up with the Internet? Uh, and and you know it's quite difficult to get or i haven't found a kind of coherent kind of history on that um but certainly from the you know the limited research i've been able to do you know regulators are always slightly behind the curve on this and you know kind of you, you you've always got that bit where you've got the entrepreneurs running with technology before the legislators start to understand it and catch up. And I think, you know, kind of it's something which is running as fast as modern AI is, you know, that that's something which obviously you, you don't want to over-regulate. And you, you spoke about some of the EU's kind of, um, AI legislation and you know I, I'd suggest regulating things like base theorem is is kind of um, probably regulatory overreach, but it, it's a Goldilocks problem. You, you you don't want to go too far and stifle the very real good that this can do for humanity, but similarly um, you don't want to let bad actors run away with it and do stuff which isn't for the benefit of of, of humans. So, um, so so I I really don't envy legislators in that space, and so I think it's incumbent on all of us to help legislators. So I actually do think it's the job of entrepreneurs and business people and people buying this software and people working in big business. I think it's the job of all of us to try and make sure that the regulatory environment is the right one. And 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 that, I mean to Chris's point saying big tech, you know, constantly arguing against regulation, I think that's entirely the wrong approach. You know, people need to be arguing for the right regulation and supporting people to do that. And I'm, you know, I'm a bit of an optimist, but I generally think people are good actors. And if you get enough people contributing to that and seeing it as important to contribute to that debate and feeling they're being heard, then, then you'll get to a better answer on um, on what that regulation should be.
0: I think I think it's a great question in terms of the kind of speed of regulation catching up each time. I'm sure there'll be somebody listening somewhere or at least uh, reading kind of what was published afterwards who kind of probably comes back with an answer on it. I did write an article, actually, which was um, I'd, I'd gone back looking at the history of CSR. And it broadly took a hundred years kind of from first people kind of talking about CSR to actually organizations kind of getting it and reporting on it and doing things. And I'd suggested that maybe we'd only got 10 years around CDR and whether we're talking about CDR or AI regs or kind of the many things that are incorporated, we need to be a lot faster um, at actually realizing that. So just in terms of wrapping up, hopefully there will be people kind of listening in a number of different countries They'll be doing a number of different roles. Hopefully, kind of a majority of those are looking at and listening, thinking, actually, they will be at least trying and understanding, especially kind of with ChatGPT 4 launched today, as you said, Sean, uh, or indeed other products, other solutions. They'll see what difference it makes to them and their job and the way they can operate and how it can help them. And indeed, somebody somewhere in that organization will hopefully also be thinking about What do they need to do differently in terms of supporting that use or sense checking kind of the ethical dilemmas associated with that use? I I guess each of you in turn, but what would be the one thing that you would leave the listeners with today um, in terms of whether it was a suggestion, a recommendation, a book to read, something to consider, something to do differently? But what, what, what would you like to leave everyone with as a final thought? Chris, do you want to go first?
2: Yeah. Okay. So I, I see. Um, if we look at the value chain, right, uh, of of uh, the, the use of these technologies, I see three uh, key players in the value chain that can actually um, uh, drive change because we need to drive change. Okay. The, the way things are going, it's so while wild west out there. Um, I think there's more harm than good. I'm not saying everybody's bad, but you know, I think there's more harm than good. So to drive change. Um, we talk about regulators they're one of the key players because they can set the guide rails right whether or not they enforce it is a different uh, topic of conversation there's the second um, uh, key group in the value chain uh, users okay so so you know use one of the reasons why I write the articles is so that to raise awareness, right, of, of what can go wrong and, and, and what's not perfect about these things, um, you know, if they're not uh, deployed uh, in a responsible way. So if you're a user, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into when you use these tools, okay? And try to understand the risk and be informed before you actually use it. Now, if you're an organizer and then the third, uh, uh, you know, key player are the organizations that deploy this, I'm not necessarily talking about the big tech, Okay, that's for the that that's a problem for the regulators to solve. I'm talking about the corporations buying these these technologies. Okay, so so and also potentially building them. So if you're part of an organization using these technologies, right? Um, uh, my my advice to 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 everyone there is to find your conscience, right? Um, and uh, ask ask why, right? Should these things be, especially if they're emerging? I mean, these are non problem technologies, right? There there the, is. It, it, you can't predict what the outcomes are. going. To, oh, yes, it's prediction for probability, but it's no certainty to that, right? Uh, do your necessity assessment. Uh, how are they going to be used? What risks exist? What safeguards need to be in place, right? So this is all part of risk management governance, accountability. Who's responsible for the controls and who's accountable for the adverse outcomes? Now, understand the risks and exposure to your business. Um, if you're not sure what to do, I'm here to help.
0: Fantastic. And and Sean, and, and I guess your answer will be, pick up the phone to speak to kind of either you or the rest of the team, but more generally kind of what, 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 what are your
1: final thoughts? I think you need to get under the bonnet of generative AI and large language models. I think they're going to change the world. And I think that any or individuals and then corporations, organizations, businesses, governments, they need to understand these and the best way to understand them is to play with them to 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 actually to actually get under the bonnet and have a look—they're not magical, right? They're they're pieces of technology. Learn how they work, learn their strengths, learn their limitations, and then from a position of knowledge, then you'll be able to make sensible, ethical, and 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 business and corporate corporate decisions. And one way you can definitely do that is by getting a demonstration of also Gen AI's software. We'd be delighted to take you through our safeguards and the power of the the tool and what it can do. <laughs>
0: fantastic and and absolutely kind of the right thing that you should have added um <laughs> it's such an important point though to kind of play and 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 to actually experience and experiment and see what they can do um so so great to finish with that look i could have kind of talked for another hour at least so so it's been fantastic conversation fantastic to see the different perspectives but actually i think we broadly agree on both the innovative value that it can deliver but at the same time being a bit cautious about how that's actually adopted so fantastic conversation look forward to the next one
1: thank you thank you